Okay, I don't think I need the stand. All right, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Um, first, uh, I'd like to uh, thank everyone so much for coming. Um, this is my second time doing this panel at NDK. Had a real fun time the first time, but I didn't think I got enough time. So I said, hey, I want two hours this time, and they said thumbs up. So, um, my name is Reagan Bird. Um, I've been presenting at NDK since 2012. Um, I uh, love it. I love that I get to geek out with fans and just discuss this. I look forward to it every year. So it's a real honor and a privilege. Um, a little plug for me, um, I'm doing this panel. Additionally, I'll be, I'll be doing um, Modern Gaming, Race and Gender and Representation on Saturday, and I'll be doing Ethics of Death Note on Sunday. So if you like my format and my style, come see me for those panels as well. Uh, so, quick overview of what we're going to be talking about. Uh, we're going to be talking about um, the origins of magical girl anime. So it's a specific genre of anime, as many of you all know. Um, we're going to be talking about kind of the differences between the magical girl, magical girlfriend, and magical girl warrior, of which um, Madoka is of the genre magical girl warrior. We're going to talk about some common themes and motifs of the magical girl warrior genre. And then um, we're gonna talk more about the series and the characters. That's kind of where um, I have more um, open discussion with the audience and, and kind of we can take topics wherever you want. I have some pre-established um, topics that I can talk about as well. And then we'll also look at some clips. And then, um, and then I wanna talk a little bit about Madoka Rebellion. Um, I still put spoilers because some people didn't know the movie was out. Some people still haven't seen the movie. So um, I put that in there just- It's on if, Netflix. If we're, yeah, it is on Netflix. I saw it Netflix. I saw it like, last year, but some people still wanted the spoiler wording, so I figured I'd put it in there. Okay, so, so the um, we should first understand the magical girl genre and kind of understanding what its origins are, um, actually in American TV, which a lot of folks don't know, and then kind of what um, some of the terminology comes from. I thought the first interesting thing was that, um, and this actually refers to, um, in episode eight when Cube says, uh, it's only fitting that magical girls become witches when they, um, uh, when they basically evolve. Uh, so that, that comes from the Japanese saying for, um, the Japanese term for magical girl and witch. So uh, Maho Shoujo is magical girl, Majoko is witch girl, and then the Majo part of that is witch. So basically it's kind of a play on words with witch almost means adult magical girl um, and it's a, it's a play on those words. Um, also, it's a common, uh, uh, most uh, Japanese uh, native speakers um, kind of had already had a common understanding of any time you reference a magical girl, it can also alternatively mean witch girl. So uh, many of those um, uh, speakers may have uh, found the, the uh, revelation in episode eight particularly fitting or amusing or ironic. So um, I just thought that was a, um, a nice place to start. And um, that's, what, that's the language that Kube uh, is referring to. Um, so ma the magical girl genre is actually inspired by the Bewitched television series um, with um, the witch Samantha. I can't, I can't remember what decade that was in. It was like the 60s, I think. Um, and uh, that was the original magical girlfriend, the beginning of that genre. And that kind of inspired um, a lot of uh, Japanese um, uh, animation artists and film artists to kind of explore that genre a little bit more in depth. And they kind of took it in their own direction in the next coming decades. Um, one of the first uh, magical girl animes is, um, I'm gonna mispronounce that name, but it's basically Sally the Witch, um, which was in 1966 through 1968. And you'll see that that was relatively close to the um, beginning of the, I um, mean, the premiere and then the run of the, the Witch series, and that's not coincidental, um, because again, uh, Japanese media was being inspired a lot by American media at the time. 
Um, another famous one is um, early uh, show was uh, Majoko Medchan, which was about a tomboyish uh, magical girl. Um, and then versus, um, it started that trend of you have one type of magical girl versus another type. So you had a, um, a feminine uh, magical girl and a tomboyish magical girl um, that were rivals to each other. Um, and then that also kind of is one of the ones that um, put a little bit more emphasis on fan service. For those who don't know what fan service is, it's considered, um, <laughs> uh, most people when they think of it, they think of like the sexual aspect of fan service, but it doesn't only encompass sexual aspects. Um, fan service usually means like if there's panty shots or jiggling breasts or stuff like that, that's a type of fan service. Um, but also anything, um, anything kind of drawn out or drawn attention to in a show that fans have really um, enjoyed or uh, fans have, um, have proven to be popular, that can actually count as fan service as well. Um, in this instance, it does refer to the more sexualized fan service. Um, and then uh, coincidentally, all of the kind of magical girl genre shows um, in the 80s, uh, before 1982, were produced by Toei Animation and then the um, genre, as it got more popular, kind of expanded out from there. So the first genre that um, kind of started the magical girl trend and is, um, is still kind of considered, it's, it's still what most people think of when they think of magical girl. They think of the magical girl warrior subdivision of, of magical girls. So um, Cutie Honey is considered um, a classic because that was one of the ones that started the magical girl transformation sequence, which is actually really considered fundamental to the magical girl warrior. It's why it shows up in so many different magical girl anime. Um, so that kind of popularized that motif um, and um, still remains, still has a kind of devoted fan uh, following. It's still considered a classic in Japan. Um, so that kind of started that trend. And then Devil, uh, Devil Hunter Yoko, um, uh, kind of emphasize kind of more of the gritty warrior aspect of magical girl, of the magical girl genre, um, and uh, started some motifs about kind of fighting demons, fighting evil, that sort of thing that we now see also common in magical girl warrior animes. Um, can't talk about <laughs> magical girl warriors without talking about the magical girl warrior show, which is Sailor Moon. Um, and there's a couple of things I want to point out about Sailor Moon. Um, so uh, Madoka is supposed to be a deconstruction of magical girl genres. And what I mean by that, um, when we say deconstruction, it's taking what are the common themes or understandings in the world of the magical girl genre, and it's actually trying to like break that down and take those apart and examine each of those pieces to see what, what does that actually mean or, or uh, trying to turn some of the logic of the magical girl genre on its head. So. Um, the, there's a couple of animes that it is the most clear antithesis to, and Sailor Moon is actually one of them. We're gonna talk a little bit more about that um, a little bit later in the panel, but um, think about, well, has anyone not seen Sailor Moon? Do I need to do a recap? Okay. <laughs> so, you never wanna assume people have seen, there's so many animes out there, so, but most folks have seen Sailor Moon. Okay, but think of what kind of the core themes of Sailor Moon are. Um, so you have this magical team, right? They're best friends, they hang out together all the time. Uh, 
anytime there is a conflict or an enemy, they're able to pre, they have some, you know, adversity against the enemy, but they're pretty much able, you have faith in the viewer and uh, you have faith as the, as the viewer and you have faith in the characters that they will eventually overcome that adversary. There kind of isn't any question, even when characters die, which they have in Sailor Moon, there's kind of no question that there's going to be a happy resolution. Characters are gonna come back to life, the enemy is, is gonna be defeated. The power of love is a, is a very common theme. So uh, anytime uh, Usagi or Serena is, is kind of, when she gets the most upset and she's the most hurt by it, my friends are hurt and there's nothing I can do about it, there's like this power of love, I will tap into this magical reservoir of stuff and emotion I have and uh, <laughs> save the day. So that, that idea that, um, that love can conquer all, and some of you might already know what, are thinking about what Madoka scene directly challenges that. Um, uh, that idea is kind of quintessential and kind of the, your atypical magical girl, I mean your typical magical girl um, uh, anime. So, so Sailor Moon kind of, um, it didn't invent a lot of these themes, it solidified a lot of the themes and it invented a few more, especially with the, um, the magical girl team um, genre. But, um, so think of some of those themes when you think about Sailor Moon, we think about you know the love conquers all, the romance, the overcoming evil. Um, as we talk more about Madoka, so um, in modern day magical girl anime, there are actually three kind of distinct genres of magical girl anime. So um, there's the neoclassical genre of which the best example is Card Captor Sakura. Um, oh, I misspelled her name. Dang it, <laughs> I didn't catch that. Um, so that should be a U instead of an A in the middle. Uh, so Cardcaptor Sakura is, um, US audiences have less experience with this because um, uh, the evil and terrible four kids attempted to, um, to dub uh, uh, Cardcaptor Sakura and just did a god awful job. They called it Cardcaptors. They started at like episode eight. Yeah, I mean, so <laughs> it was. I, I remember trying to watch it as a kid and not and not being able to follow the plot very well because they chopped it up and just mutilated it. So uh, U.S. audiences uh, haven't got uh, haven't gotten a very good dub of this, um, but it's still uh, still pretty well known um, because it's very very popular in Japan and a lot of folks have streamed it and viewed it um, since then. Now that we have more access to kind of Japan. Um, I mean, animes that haven't been uh, ported over to the U.S. So, um, so this anime is kind of, uh, think of it as kind of this, um, these animes focus typically on young, young girls. So uh, we're looking at middle school age or even going into elementary school age for some animes. And um, they are, uh, think of them as kind of the purest sense of what a magical girl anime is. So they kind of, uh, they have all the themes of Sailor Moon, but then they have those themes and like don't try to challenge or question those themes really at all. It's kind of, it's all about the purity, the innocence of the girl, the, the love conquering all. It's about um, her discovering her power, her becoming more self-confident. It's about all those kind of common themes that you know um, and understand. And this is another anime that's a good example of the, um, the type of anime that Madoka is trying to contrast itself against. Um, so uh, Sailor Moon, but Cardcaptor Sakura especially, um, because you can really kind of um, make some uh, solid comparisons between Sakura's character and Madoka's character on um, their personality and some of their, um, their instincts when it comes to friendship and stuff like that. Um, the next genre that you see today is kind of uh, what's called the action anime girl genre. Um, so, um, 
they, I would even put, um, oh, what is it called? Um, why can't I think of the name of it? The one where they have, they're fighting with the, the giant scissors. Oh, and, uh, kill a kill. <laughs> I don't know why I can't, when you're up here, sometimes your mind goes blank. So I, yeah, so Kill a Kill, I would put that in this category. Um, it's an action-oriented anime um, uh, where um, it's, the focus is more on teenage or adult, um, adult male or female, like there will be male characters in it, so it'll focus on either um, teenage or adult women. Um, Male characters are more common in this type of one, either as, not necessarily as romantic partners sometimes, but usually as, um, they can show up as rivals, they can show up as, um, as uh, allies, uh, stuff like that. So in the other, in the, some of the other animes, you don't see um, as much emphasis on male characters, and um, uh, Madoka actually does that as well, where there's not very many male characters that, are, that get an extensive amount of characterization. Um, but in the action uh, genre, they show up more often. Um, and so this one is just, uh, this is kind of, this is a variation on the, the atypical magical girl because there's a further emphasis on grittiness, there's an emphasis on the action scenes. Um, these anime are trying to uh, bridge a gap between um, the, um, the anime that is uh, seeking out uh, solely kind of female audiences or young female audiences and then male audiences in Japan who are looking, who are, you know, the ones who are watching Dragon Ball Z or, or Yu Yu Hakusho or Bleach. It's trying to ble uh, blend the, um, the audiences for that and kind of appeal to two groups at the same time. So those, uh, that genre is distinct and it's actually becoming much, much more common in Japan than it had been in the past um, because, um, you know, they, they double their audience. They're getting very popular. Um, and stuff like that. So uh, these ones, they will still have the themes of the neoclassical um, magical growth. So it'll still be an emphasis on uh, friendship is still important. Sometimes it'll be more of a subtext than a primary um, sort of theme of the anime. Um, but uh, it'll still have some of those classic themes that we're used to with magical girls in those uh, stories. And finally, the third one is actually now its own category, which is the deconstruction. So um, uh, Madoka is one of several series um, that are starting to um, tackle uh, the traditional neoclassical magical girl and actually um, explore the themes on a deeper level. So um, again, as I said, deconstruction is kind of summarizing the pieces, summarizing the themes of something, and then breaking that down and looking at each of those pieces and um, either countering it or problematizing it or, or giving you a different angle to look at it. Um, so Madoka is, um, uh, especially since Madoka was so popular, um, it's, one of the, it's one of the most prominent uh, uh, magical girl deconstruction animes and it is, um, is essentially the quintessential one, is essentially the one that everyone refers to about the one that really did it right and kind of broke down some of these common themes. So, um, uh, Madoka, uh, I don't think it started the trend, um, the name is escaping me of a couple other ones, but doing my research there were a few other um, animes that did do a similar type thing as Madoka, but they weren't quite as popular, um, but Madoka kind of started this trend about more uh, deconstruction magical girl animes, um, and they're now becoming more common. So just a quick recap um, for those of you um, who want to see it visually, just <laughs> the common themes and motifs are uh, kind of the power of love, friendship, I put kisses and sparkles in there because it's really, it's really common to see very, and Madoka does this as well, but it's very common to see, um, 
you know, feminine attacks, a lot of glitter, a lot of like pretty visuals in, in magical girl anime, and um, and that is considered um, just one of those aesthetic pieces that's fundamental to the uh, to the type of um, um, to the genre. Um, one thing I think is interesting that a lot of groups talk about is kind of a it's kind of a source of controversy um, in the fandom is this notion of the power of the feminine. So, um, and it's not clear cut, but in typically in Western animation and in Western media, if you're going to have a strong female character, she tends to take on a lot of masculine attributes. And what that means is the way in which they write the action scenes. Um, the the female character, um, like I'm trying to put it into words, uh, the female character, for instance, has a very distinct way of fighting that tends to mimic if you if you see uh, if you see male if you see their, her along male co-stars, they tend to, uh, their action scenes tend to mimic what the male co-stars do, as opposed to uh, what I referenced in. Um, in the Magical Girl anime, there's not a lot of like sparkly attacks. There's not a lot of super things that we associate with the feminine. There's not a lot of that. There's more like gritty sort of action for our um, female, um, our female heroines. Um, additionally, there's um, there's less of an emphasis on emotion, um, which is associated with the feminine. There's less of an emphasis on um, on like kind of. I guess I want to say instinct. There's more of an emphasis on kind of a coldness, a rationality that we associate with masculinity in in the Western media sphere. Um, so our um, and that, again, it's not true for all uh, all Western female characters. But if you're going to have an action female character, you will tend to see her blend with the way they write male characters. Now in um, Japan it's kind of, uh, it's different. They have much, much less of that, and they actually have more of this very feminine action girl. So you, they wear dresses, even though they're doing action scenes. They have um, still very feminine attributes. They have um, still very associated with, uh, you know, kind of feminine um, attacks, appearances, um, that sort of thing. And there's never, there, there's much less blending of gender lines. There's much less ambiguity there um, than with some uh, Western characterization. So the reason why it's a controversy is um, the uh, to a Western audience, the ability of an action girl to still be feminine uh, could be quite revolutionary. It could be, you know, oh, so we don't uh, being powerful doesn't necessarily mean you have to be masculine. You can be feminine and still be powerful, and that's something we don't we see less of. So a lot of Western audiences find that refreshing or empowering. Um, the uh, on the contrary, some folks have pointed out, well, in Japan. The concern is that it doesn't matter what you're doing as a woman, you still are expected to be feminine. So even if you're an action hero, you still need to be feminine if you're a woman. So then they're, they're saying that, well, it's actually not great if you look at it uh, from the perspective of Japan's media. So um, it's kind of like, I think it's an interesting contrast. Um, and again, it's kind of, I mean, it's not, it's something that people have felt but are just now starting to talk about about what is this distinction between Western and Japanese media, and then um, uh, some, sometimes they're actually influencing each other, and it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, some other common themes and motifs are coming of age stories, um, so that's especially true in neoclassical uh, magical girl genres, where again, you have the young, um, the young woman who is, um, again, learns self-confidence, learns her own power, learns how to come into her own um, during her 
uh, during her um, whole experience during the anime. So uh, that's a very common theme in a lot of um, magical girl anime. Um, and we talked about good triumphs over evil, then this notion of justice, and then this kind of purity of heart or spirit. Um, even Madoka um, doesn't, uh, doesn't really challenge that kind of theme because usually your main character uh, your main character or the most powerful character uh, in magical girl genres will often be the most pure of heart. That's really uh, indicative with um, in Sailor Moon with Serena or Yusagi. Um, uh, it's indicative of Madoka. Um, it's indicative of Karakata Sakura. So it's a lot of um, a lot of the magical girl genres emphasize that theme very strongly. And sometimes it, they don't even if they're doing a deconstruction, it's still there in a very strong a very strong way. So there's this notion about purity and um, and having a, um, you know, a very un, unadulterated view of the world. So um, before I go on, we're gonna talk more a little bit about the ways in which Madoka specifically deconstructs some stuff. Uh, but do, does anyone have any questions or any thoughts that they wanted to discuss about the magical genre, the magical girl genre as a whole? Okay. Okay, so specifically with Madoka, um, the things that they're trying to deconstruct um, with magical girl, um, magical girl themes are some of the things that I've listed here. So um, they're trying to bring in some of the real world implications, some of the actual challenges um, that you might actually face if, if uh, becoming a magical girl was a thing that you could actually do in the real world or in our, um, in our actual environment. So uh, one of the things they want to explore is this notion of the cost of power. So you uh, you wish for something. Uh, what is the what is where is that wish coming from? What is the cost of that? You're gaining something. Where does that gain come from? If everything in the universe is equal. So uh, Madoka uh, challenges that notion by saying, you know, you whatever whatever amount of hope or whatever amount. Um, of, of goodwill you put into the universe is going to be counteracted by the same amount of despair that you're going to cause. So there's a balancing act. It doesn't matter how powerful you become, you're going to add a certain amount of negativity to the universe um, in contrast to that. Um, and that, it reminded me a lot when I was thinking about it of the of Full Metal Alchemist when you know they talk about um, uh, that you can't get something for free and there's the balancing of of uh, everything that you uh, produce or create must take from something and then um, things must remain equal. So it, that's not an uncommon notion in anime in general, um, but um, it's, uh, it's particularly apt when Madoka is trying to deconstruct that notion in uh, magical girl genres because uh, in very few of those is that issue ever explored. You just gain power and it's just the power that you have. There is no consequence to having power in other magical girl animes. Um, the other one, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the next one that they try to uh, look at is uh, love and friendship versus fate. So what power does, uh, does your love for people, does your belief in them have over what is ultimately going to be your fate? Um, typically, uh, typically love and friendship, as we talked about, overcome, uh, overcome any kind of obstacles that, that people may have in a magical girl anime, uh, but uh, in Madoka, they're saying you, that none of that actually matters because you can't overcome what your what your fate is, um, which is uh, becoming a witch in Madoka. 
Um, it does, most people point out that the end of the anime, in fact, does kind of semi-reaffirm the love and friendship. Like if you love enough or think about it enough, you may still be able to get something done. But um, the, most of the anime is challenging that sort of notion. Like when, so when uh, Sakura um, turns into a witch, uh, and uh, Kyoko is attempting to save her. Kyoko is relying, that's, that's, that's this uh, uh, notion that she's relying on in her head. She's like, this is supposed to happen in anime, this is supposed to happen in stories where if we just, if we just believe hard enough, we can save her, and then the, you know, the anime doesn't even give you an inkling that it was even semi-working, it kind of just really definitively says that that is not the reality that they're living in in this anime. Um, there's this notion of selfish wishes and the immaturity of youth. So um, almost all of the wishes, um, except for Madoka's ultimate wish, um, and uh, a background of some of the anime is uh, kind of what her previous wishes had been. Um, so Madoka's first wish, I think according to the author, was to save a cat who had been run over um, and then you see that in the anime opening when she's like happy and holding a cat. So that was one of her first wishes. And then other wishes were kind of less serious or sillier than that. Um, uh, or si not sillier than that, but uh, silly like that. Um, so she, uh, all of their wishes had kind of naivet naivety to them. Because uh, um, uh, I'd, I'd maybe exclude Mommy from that because the implication with Mommy's wish is that she wished to simply save her life. Uh, she was in a car accident, so the implication is we don't actually hear what her wish is, but um, it's implied that she was gravely injured and then she wished something along those lines to, um, to get out of that situation. So that, that was a pretty logical wish, um, but it's still one that, um, that was, she didn't have enough time to think about. It wasn't a well-considered wish because it was an emergency. Um, um, Sakura's wish is considered by many of the fandom to be the worst wish and the stupidest one. Um, I would agree with that. <laughs> um, I just, uh, I, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about her character and, and I can get some thoughts from the audience, but I did, I sympathize with her character, um, Sayaka's character, but I also found her incredibly frustrating. So, <laughs> um, something to note about Sayaka's character is she makes the same wish in every single timeline. So it is considered um, uh, a word of God or, or uh, author's authority that she makes the same wish every single time. So Homer is going back and seeing the same mistake over and over and over again. And you can imagine how at some point you're just like, well, screw it, I'm not gonna save Saika. I really don't give a shit at this point. <laughs> um, and I just, I just thought that was an interesting side note because you wouldn't think that necessarily unless you had heard that or read that somewhere. Um, so obviously her wish is to you know, heal her, um, not even her boyfriend, to heal someone she has a crush on, um, and then seems like a very ill-considered Ill, uh, wish. And then uh, Kyoko's wish is um, she acknowledges that it was immature and not um, and not forward-thinking. So she uh, so she wanted her father to um, uh, she thought he was preaching like uh, interesting ideas and no one was following him, no one was listening to him. So she um, wished for him to uh, to get followers because she thought that that was going to be helpful for her family. But then we know what ultimately happened is um, once he found out that it was all fake, then he um, committed suicide and then killed her, um, the remainder of her family. So the, um, yeah, so this, uh, so the immaturity of uh, the wishes and then kind of reflecting back on what some of the mistakes were, um, 
that is the, that's the, it's kind of challenging this, this notion that um, anytime there's gonna be a magical girl, they're not necessarily gonna know what they're doing, they're not necessarily gonna be motivated by the correct stuff, uh, they're not necessarily, um, uh, they're not necessarily uh, thinking about the full implications about what battling every day would be like and, and what implications that would have for their life, which leads us to um, the benefits of having an ordinary life. So um, Homer's whole kind of motivation for Madoka is to stop Madoka from becoming a magical girl because she, she now understands uh, what the benefits are of uh, kind of being an ordinary person. She can't go back, but she can at least stop Madoka from going back. Um, and then after this, we'll look at some clips as well. Uh, so the um, so an ordinary kind of existence is uh, is actually the opposite of what a lot of magical girl uh, anime and genres like talk about. The the fantasy is the power, or the fantasy is being able to become a magical girl and actually be able to um, affect the world around you or create some change. Uh, but the um, so the emphasis is on the fantasy of the other magical girl genres is becoming a magical girl, whereas in this one, it's the fantasy is, what if you were able to avoid all the consequences of becoming a magical girl and didn't have to worry about any of that? That's actually the better life to live. Um, and then, um, there's uh, a lot of, uh, it's way too in-depth for me to go into in this panel, but essentially, um, a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of analysis on the similarities between Madoka and, um, Faust, which is a play um, by, that's a German name, I can't remember. Gartel. Gartel. Um, uh, uh, so there's been a lot of analysis on, um, on the similarities between Madoka and Faust. You can read about it online on the Madoka uh, wiki, uh, Wikipedia page, um, or their Wikia page. And essentially, it's, uh, there's a lot of interesting similarities um, between um, between the play and Madoka, and there's um, a lot of references um, in the uh, that the series makes towards that play. So the um, as best as I can tell, Faust is essentially about um, a man who is dissatisfied with the kind of his human limitations, and then makes a deal with the devil um, to kind of try to explore. Uh, explore more of the uh, explore explore his humanity past what the limitations are of a normal human, and then kind of goes into some um, some deeper themes after that. Uh, but uh, things like um, odd associations between Madoka and that play will happen. Like for instance, the one of the characters in Faust is named Gretchen, and Gretchen is the name of Madoka's uh, witch form, uh, Krimhild Gretchen. So they do. They make some associations like that, some surface level associations, but then there's also um, a lot of uh, different overlapping themes and stuff like that. So I'd encourage you to read more on that if that sounds interesting. Okay, so I want to play, I want to play a couple clips. I want to play one or two, and then um, for us to start talking up some more about some of these themes. I'm trying to see which one is. I had them queued up at one point. Not that one. No. Oh, I have a quick question. Does anybody know has it has the atonement clip been confirmed as real, the movie four clip, or is it an April Fool's joke? Yes. It was an April Fool's joke, but in July this year they confirmed they were making another movie. They okay. Yay! Okay. So I do have that clip for those who haven't seen it online. Um, I knew that they were doing more media, but then I, I, I could not find any 
any um, confirmation if it was um, still just a if it was still just an April Fool's joke. I can do that one here. I'm sorry, I don't know why it's not showing you the previews. Yes, VLC. So it usually shows the preview of it, but then it's not, uh, it took that away from some point. Not that one. Well, you didn't talk about the mentor yet. Oh, the, um, the mentor is referring to um, the older, wiser, I think I skipped on that on purpose because I was wanting to um, get to a clip, but um, so the mentor is referring to there being a wiser, more experienced character that kind of leads or guides the um, the magical girl. So, um, Madoka deconstructs that in several ways. It deconstructs that with Mommy, because Mommy is supposed to be an experienced magical girl, but we see as the series progresses that she is feigning confidence, she is feigning kind of knowing stuff. She doesn't know as much as she um, thinks she knows about what's going on in the magical girl era. Um, I mean, in the magical girl, um, she doesn't know as much as she thinks she knows in terms of the, um, the magical girl uh, world of Madoka, that's what I was trying to say. Um, and um, and she, um, and things that, that are revealed about how much she didn't know, such as when Homura says, um, Mommy's one of the people who never found out about the soul gems, that she never found out that her soul was actually placed into a soul gem and it was separate from her body, um, kind of uh, turns that on its face that even someone that you're looking up to as more experienced uh, may, not, may be the person who knows the least or has the, um, or uh, isn't really confident or sure about what they're doing. And it's also turned on its face with um, Kyubei. So obviously Kyubei is supposed to be this guiding force. It's, he's supposed to be similar to Luna in Sailor Moon or um, that teddy bear thing and, and <laughs> Scar Captain Scar. I can't remember his name. He's supposed to be Cerberus, essentially. Cerberus, oh, okay. But it's um, Kyo. Kyo. Okay, thank you for knowing that. Um, the, um, so he's supposed to be contrasting with kind of the, the fluffy, cute character mentor that kind of guides the magical girl, but as we know, Kyubei is quite the opposite of that, which we'll talk more about. Um, and we, um, so he's supposed to be, you know, you're supposed to have some sort of omnipotent, either omnipotent or well-intentioned guide throughout the trials and tribulations of being a magical girl, but none of the magical girls in Madoka have that. They have people who are doing it for their own interests or they have people who think they know what they're doing but don't. So um, the mentor is, is flipped on its head in Madoka in that way. I'm trying to decide what is, oh, that's a rebellion. I mean, not rebellion, I told her. Um, and I can also, um, I have the episode, so I can also pull up clips that folks would like to reference um, as well. Um, yeah, so we're about to talk about Cuba, so this is the one I wanted to look at. Um, I want us to look at Cuba's speech to Madoka. So this is in episode nine, after Madoka um, finds out that um, that being a magical girl eventually turns you into a witch after she has found out all these horrible things and realities about what being a magical girl is actually about. Um, so I want us to look at Kyubei's speech to Madoka and kind of analyze that a little bit more. And this is in Japanese with subtitles. We tested it earlier and I think folks can, in the, there's, no one in, there's not very many people in the far back, but um, y'all folks should be able to read it as well. I think I, 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 I,
I got probably have to exit out of the power point.
れでも弁解に来たつもりだったんだよ君たちの犠牲がどれだけ素晴らしいものをもたらすか理解してもらいたかったんだがどうやら無理みたいだね当たり前でしょマドカいつか君は最高の魔法少女になるそして最悪の魔女になるだろうその時僕らはかつてないほど大量のエネルギーを手に入れるはずだこの宇宙のために死んでくれる気になったらいつでも声をかけて待ってるからね<laughs> I love that part. If you feel like dying, just call me. Straight up saying. So I have a simple question for the audience.、Uh, somewhat simple. Does. So,、uh, does Cube obtain consent? It'll come up a sec. Not informed consent. I went right to my point. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Uh-huh. So, uh, so, explain what you mean. Explain what in your mind is the difference between consent and informed consent. Okay.、Um, an eight year old child is not old enough to consent to something like that.、Mm -hmm. Granted, that's, like, I guess, a very Western view of. Thank you.、Um, and I, I mean, Japanese、uh, legal law is similar to ours in terms of consent for contracts and stuff like that. So there's a lot of overlap there.、Um, but yeah, it is, you could say we're looking at it from a Western perspective as well. Are you、um, even looking at it legally? You know, the world of girls doesn't even go into a legal concept. That right. That in and of itself is completely different. Yeah, I just mean in terms of like our definition of informed consent comes from like a legal background. Um, so, I want to talk about what do we mean by what, it, what is consent and what does consent look like in terms of something like entering into a contract?、Um, yes? So, I have two things to point out. Like, the first thing I can think of is the best analogy to explain consent and informed consent is like、uh, offering someone a cake. Like, look, I have this magnificent cake. You want some? And then you're like, yeah, I want cake. And then when you try the cake, it turns out it has an ingredient that you're allergic to. And this person knew you were allergic to it. But still offered you the cake, and then you're dying on the ground because of allergies. And they're just like, Well, you said you wanted the cake. <laughs> right.、Um, but one thing I wanted to point out is like, we keep like, looking at consent in terms of a legal matter. Like, Kiwi's not from our world.、Mm -hmm. He doesn't understand our legal concept of consent. So his version of consent is like, Do you want this cake?、Um, whereas our version says, like, Yeah, I want cake, but tell me if it's going to kill me. Do you think Kiwi is being genuine when he says, We're obtaining consent. Like, do you think Kubei thinks he means that, or is he, or is he just saying that to try to convince Madoka of something? Since he's a creature, he himself says like, like we're a creature that lack emotion or something. Like, our race does not like have that like emotional aspect or something.、Uh, I feel that his idea of consent is like asking you if you want the cake, and like that to him is probably complete consent because he doesn't understand like this could kill you,、mm -hmm. but you wanted it, so that that's consent, right?、Mm -hmm. That's he probably doesn't understand like. Um, since he doesn't understand emotions, like consent is one、uh, telling me that, like, if you want a cake, you're like, yeah, I want it, but like, if you're not telling me how it could hurt me,、mm -hmm. then that's not really letting me know, like, if I really want this cake. Right. He's not going to that second level of consent because they don't really need that second level of consent because they're emotional <coughs> creatures, they're safe. Right, this makes sense. Yes.、So. Um, although. Um, also, regarding the clip, Kyubei says that he doesn't understand the concept of deception. However, in other parts of the show,、um, he specifically says that he did not inform 
Um, like in the case of Kyoko, mm -hmm. he he acted in a manner that suggested to Kyoko that maybe something was possible when he knew otherwise. And he said as much to Hamura that he did. So I'm not so sure that he doesn't know of deception. And the fact that he's saying that may in fact be a deception. Cause he, but the thing is, he may view it as okay because since he lacks emotions, from his logical viewpoint, anything that furthers his goal is acceptable. Um, and I'll call on a couple of people, but just real quick. Um, so several people have touched on this notion that our understanding of ethics or our understanding of morality and consent is contingent upon human emotion, which is an interesting kind of idea. Like, so we, you need to have kind of this instinctual feeling of right and wrong to like have to, to have an adequate concept of ethics or um, or consent. That's an interesting idea. Um, yes. So we do know that at one point, at least at one point, he intentionally withheld information. So, so Kube is, the author has said that Kube does not lie. Um, so we know that Kube does not give false information, but he will actively and intentionally withhold information. Does that count as deception or does that not count as deception? In our current, um, in our legal concept of consent in America, Withholding information is considered intentional deception, especially if you're withholding information to reach a certain end, which Cubase said he was doing. He said, I, I'm withholding information because I want a Kyogo and um, Sayaka to die um, so that it would force Madoka to try to become a magical girl. So he did it with also a certain aim. He didn't just withhold the information. It was like, oh, oops, I forgot about it. Or it was just, I didn't think it was important. He did it to achieve a certain aim. So is that deception or is that not deception? Yeah. Um, you back in the back. He's a car salesman. <laughs> 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 very, very good explanation. He's not deceiving her. He's actually he's being uh, quite blunt with all the information she actually asked for. Uh, his race of whatever they are, they actually don't really have this. Um, we were talking about values earlier. Mm -hmm. It's not so much values, it's more so knowledge of what the values are. So uh, I'm going to sell a car to somebody. I'm going to tell them all the features that this car has. I will not club that statistically by dropping being in this car driving on the road, you have a greater chance of dying than you are walking uh, and uh, sidewalk somewhere else back there. Because for us, that's common knowledge. He's assuming it's a fair trade. I'm giving you a wish, you eventually going to trade it to a wish. I don't see what confusion is, at least as in his mind. Um. Uh, as a funny aside, like uh, my friend and I have this funny thing. We'll sometimes we'll like make up like what if Cube was doing like existed in the world and you were trying to ask him just a straight question like does this car have tires this car has rubber on it like or he'll, <laughs> he'll just he'll, he'll answer the question but he'll do it in a way that doesn't really answer the question that is funny like i don't know uh is the car red there are specks of red in the car's color spectrum or something um yeah in the green shirt yes um i think the issue is that people are there's two fundamental schools of morality or at least there used to be what we're dealing with and that we're accusing you of not having is kantian 
which is based on the maxim by which you do something with the core of people are our ends, not means. Yes, he's referring to Immanuel Kant's um, the philosophy. Don't try to read him. <laughs> it is impossible. I took sociology, so I had to read it. But what Hume operates on a, a grand scale of utilitarianism, which is John Stuart Mill. Mm -hmm. And basically, he's operating at such a huge scale that the misery, the misfortune of the human is so utterly minuscule as to not, as to actually not impact his mindset at all. But the projected gains for the entire universe are so grand compared to the misery of a few people that it is completely justified in the mind. Yes, um, and then a uh, uh, quick summary of what utilitarianism is, basically this notion that the greatest good for the greatest number, that's your highest moral obligation is achieve the greatest good for the greatest number of people, which Cube uh, does in fact think he's doing. Um, let's do one more, and then we'll move on to another topic. Yes. Um, I also just want to, I guess, build on something that's already been said, is that Cube, just because he can't lie, mm -hmm. you know, he, he, he is restricted by the truth, it doesn't mean he can't manipulate it. And mm -hmm. that's very key, because he even says, like, they never ask the right questions. It's like, well, I would have told you all of this if you asked, LOL, joke's on you. And I think, you know, he has to know, they know that. And so they know how to manipulate giving out pieces of information so they never ask the right questions, or they ask the questions that they think will give them the complete truth. And so it's not a deception in that it's direct and it's lying, but it's, it's manipulation of the truth that he is allowed to give. Thank you. Um, I'm of the school of thought that, um, like, like some of you in the room, that Q-Bay is intentionally being deceptive. Because I think that, that that whole thing with Kyoko kind of confirmed that he's trying to achieve a specific end, so he's steering thought processes and conversations to try and achieve that end. Um, but I want to um, put another uh, thought out there, is, which is up on the, on the board. Can we even trust anything Cubay says? Keep in mind, the only person that, the only confirmation we have gotten that what, that what Cubay says is happening is from Cubay. So we don't, we haven't seen entropy in action in the anime. We haven't seen uh, any of this devastation in the universe. We actually only have his word about why he's doing this and to what purpose. I and he's been, um, and if we don't think he's telling the whole truth, or if we know he withholds information, or if we know that he can, um, he can be partially deceptive, depending on what your opinion is, then how do we know that his, his take on what is happening in the universe is even a reality? And of course, his whole notion that, um, um, so we, even if we take what the author says, that Cubay doesn't lie or isn't being intentionally, the author also says that Cubay is not evil. Cubay is um, generally is trying to achieve um, what he says he's trying to achieve. Um, he doesn't go into details about what that means, but he basically does say that he does not, Cubay is unfeeling and cold, he says, but Cubay is not evil. Even if we take all of that to be true, Cubay can still be withholding information about what is the full picture of the universe. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, if Cubay is, is actually utilitarian and is trying to achieve the maximum good for the greatest number, then why is the new solution from Madoka's recreated, restructured universe not good enough? Because curses reappeared, they, they started converting energy in a different way with those little black crystals that um, Homer was throwing into Cubay's back. That was, that was achieving the end of getting additional energy for the universe. The Cubays somehow thought that that was unacceptable. They're like, no, we want to get more energy. Let's go back to the witch thing. And that's what happened in, um, in Rebellion. So 
why is that acceptable then? Wouldn't it be better to then get energy conversion and allow the people of Earth to remain, um, you know, to remain unmanipulated, to remain themselves, to not, not turn into witches, to not ultimately become the biggest witch? Hubei also didn't have a problem with um, Madoka essentially becoming the biggest witch and destroying Earth, meaning that there's no more magical worlds. Why was that okay? Isn't doesn't that then cut off your energy source that you said was so important. So some of his decisions are kind of confusing if he's truly coming from a utilitarian perspective and if he's truly doing what he says he's going to do. Um, so we can talk more about Cubane in a little bit if y'all want, but I wanna give folks a chance to talk about some other characters. So, Mommy, <laughs> um, uh, we're gonna go through each of the magical worlds. Um, Mommy, um, I post for each of the magical girls um, what their, uh, their names kind of mean, because some of their names have associations with their characters and kind of give you um, indications about, <clears throat> excuse me, their motivations or, their, um, or what associations they have, uh, they're trying to draw to that character in the anime. So Mommy's name is actually pretty simple. Um, it's supposed to sound like Mommy as in mother, um, it, which is a common uh, pronunciation and understanding of that pronunciation worldwide. Um, and then I also thought it was funny that her companion in Rebellion, Bebe, also sounds like Baby. Uh, so <laughs> um, I think that um, this is supposed to just give an indication about her character being maternal to the other characters, her character kind of supposing, uh, supposed to be a mentor, um, and her, um, her kind of status as the de facto leader of the, um, of the group before even even when folks find out who Homer is, like the the mommy is still kind of considered is still the most representational of the leader in the in terms of how she's characterized in um, uh, in the anime. And then um, we also get to directly see a fight between Homer and mommy, and mommy um, appears to be more skilled because she's able to catch Homer off guard and kind of make adjustments. So mommy is kind of uh, the best representation of a leader in um, and the best warrior fighter. Um, even though she uh, she has weaknesses um, for the group, um, Sayaka, her name uh, has the character for beauty in it, and also tree. Um, and uh, interesting enough, uh, it could be written as tree trunk or sake offered to the gods, which I thought was funny. Um, <laughs> she, I don't know if you can interpret like her sacrifice as an offering to the gods, but it's an interesting uh, interpretation. Um, she, um, as I talked before, I find her character frustrating because I found the problems with the wish you wanted to make so obvious that I was just like, I cannot believe she's actually gonna make that stupid ass wish. And, and you know, is just like, just wish for him to be like sick and then you could take care of him. And he's like, that makes sense. And, and I just thought that him arguing with her about, it's almost like he, um, was pointing out how foolish the wish was because he, he wasn't that invested in her becoming or not becoming a magical girl. But um, uh, it was kind of, uh, I just thought it was, I, I don't know, I, I, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to pinpoint what, what, I, what problems I have with her character. I did think um, she had a lot of dimension drawn to her uh, with, um, in her interactions with Kyoko, and then kind of this, uh, her conversations with Homura, because uh, like many of you, I think um, if any of you have like gone back and watched the series like a second time, it's so fun to like, you know, watch it the first time and you're surprised and stuff like that, then to go back and rewatch it from Homura's perspective, and just to really understand how angry and frustrated she is, like, I don't know, I would have been, I would have probably gone insane. Uh, the author said that, um, uh, 
he estimates that Homura went back and has been going back in time for about 10 years. So that, <laughs> you can just, and then, um, you know, the, the, the span of time that she's going back is, is, you know, several, a couple months, we're looking at maybe two to three months. So she's going back in time and reliving these same three months over and over again for a span of about 10 years. So, um, so in terms of Sayaka, uh -huh, huh? if it's three, three months and spent uh, 10 years, that's like about four times a year. That's 40 times. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Well, it's even more, is it more than that? No, like I said, yeah, it's 40 times. Um, yes. <laughs> so, uh, so, um, so I thought going back and looking then at her discussion with um, Saika's discussion with Homura, like when Saika's like, why are you talking to me about Madoka? This isn't about Madoka. Like I'm going through stuff and Homura doesn't care because she's like, no, everything actually has to do with Madoka. Your, your stuff is incidental. <laughs> and furthermore, I've seen you do this 18 freaking times. Just, I'm sick of it. So, um, so I really thought that, that the, the layers um, from rewatching it that add to the conversation I thought were really interesting. Um, so Kyoko um, didn't find much on her name other than obviously her last name Sakura means cherry blossom and then her um, Her first name I think um, means uh, it has the characters for apricot in it um, Which might be like a, a reference to the food that she always eats and her um, and her value for that um, Kyoko is um, I think her character is her role in the character is supposed to be kind of the cynical uh, person and like uh, so these are common character typings in kind of any of the uh, fighting team senshi team um, uh, they, You have different common stock characters So she has a role to play in the team and her kind of role is um, so mommy is a leader um, Sayaka, I guess you could call her the she's kind of an idealist who gets kind of discouraged um, Kyoko is more of uh, the um, tomboyish revelish um, uh, frustrated, is angry about past decisions, like she's, so she's kind of that type of character archetype. Um, and um, again, I found, you know, once you know her story and then go back and look at it, once you kind of see her interactions um, with Sayaka and even in Rebellion, um, you kind of see that they, um, uh, I think they're still trying to imply that those characters are close, that she has a, a close relationship with Sayaka. So um, there's more additional layers to, to her conversations with people and kind of her perspective. Essentially, she made the same mistake as Sayaka. She's like, I was trying to, to make, I made a really rash wish that I didn't really think through um, and that um, ended up harming the people I care about. It didn't achieve what I wanted it to achieve. So that's kind of what draws her to Sayaka's character is that she made it, um, and she essentially says that in the series, but that essentially she made the same mistake and, um, and uh, that's why she's kind of bitter and angry that she has to keep fighting for something that she doesn't even have anymore. She doesn't have the family. She doesn't even have the wish that she was fighting for. Mommy at least still ha still has her wish, and Sayaka to some extent still has her wish, even though it didn't result in her actually developing a relationship. Um, she uh, she still has the benefits of her wish, whereas Kyoko has lost all the benefits of her wishes and not fighting in perpetuity for really no reason. And feel if, if people want to chime in about characters, you can also uh, raise your hand if you want to discuss something further. Um, yes. That. Um, in that sense, though, Kyoko also attempts to be a mentor to Sayaka in that regard. Yes, absolutely. Because once she realizes that she made the same mistake, although Kyoko is very um, uh, harsh about her methods, she suggests <laughs> ways in which uh, Sayaka could fix her problem 
and get what she wants. She also mentions that it would probably be better to ignore what's going on with the wish and find her own reasons to be herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So yeah, Kyoko, again, she has, uh, she's had experience for several, applied for several years like mommy. Um, so she has uh, a more holistic view of the whole magical girl wish structure as well. Um, and what is, um, I'm just terrible at remembering names today. So what is, what is the guy's name that Sayaka made the wish for? Kyosuke. Um, I was also like, you can't be mad at him because Sayaka never approached him, but you're also kind of like, she explicitly was on his hospital bed being like, miracles happen. Then the next day a miracle happened, I'd be like, did you do something or what happened? Like, <laughs> he never even like, seems to approach her, which I thought was interesting. And um, yeah, I just, I, I mean, like I said, I feel, I really contrast between feeling a lot of sympathy for her because she really got the raw end of the stick there versus um, being frustrated with her wrist. Yes. I might be, I, 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 I acknowledge that. I feel like she could represent that, that pure magical girl character that you were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. and like what happens to nice people in the real world, like they just get crushed by things so easily, so I don't think we I apologize if I'm picking on Sayaka too much. I'm just trying to communicate what I thought, like what my reactions to the character were. Um, so, but yeah, I do, I do think your point is well taken that um, she is, her and Madoka, Mommy is actually actually really optimistic and stuff like that too. So, so her, Madoka, and Mommy are clearly contrasted as the characters who still have an idealistic outlook on life are still kind of not jaded as much um, as Kyoko and Homura, even though we don't see, um, uh, with Rebellion, they finally kind of paired Homura and Kyoko together to kind of to acknowledge that they have some similarities in terms of their outlook. Um, but um, uh, yeah, Madoka, Mami, and uh, Sayaka, also the three starting characters, also who were friends, um, of course, the audience first in the beginning. Um, so they try to group those characters together intentionally because they are kind of the idealistic, um, have a positive outlook characters. Yes? Um, I agree. Uh, Sayaka, well, Sayaka's made my favorite character to watch because I like watching her destruction. I know that sounds super, like, she should be my least favorite character uh-huh. for that. But it's so fun to watch because she has a black and white view of the world. She is that, and like she was saying, that innocence, that pure, that like love will prevail and justice is the strongest. She is like the hardcore, no, like line, line in the sand drawn, the embodiment of that and how that just doesn't work when you're talking about the real world. Mm-hmm. And that's what breaks her is she has this definition of justice and how the world should work and that it should prevail and everybody should listen to it. And when it doesn't, it's a shattering worldview, and unfortunately, her soul is on the line when that worldview is shattered for her. Right. And then turns witch. So I think it's really interesting to watch that, and that's why it's frustrating too, is because mm-hmm. she's so white knight, black and white. <laughs> right. Um, I was gonna say. So who thinks like? Does anyone think that like it's it's all Hitomi's fault? Like if Hitomi had if Hitomi had invited in, like things would have been better, or she would have been as as like pissed off, or because um, I mean Hitomi doesn't get talked about very much, but it would have um, taken longer, but it would have happened. Yeah, yeah, it would have happened eventually. 
when your worldview is that black and white, it's very fragile um, to the grays of the real world. So if it wasn't Hitomi and uh, uh, the love interest, it would have eventually have been something else. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe she would have learned about the witch thing and then had problems with it. Mm -hmm. Or something else could have triggered it. But if it, the fact that it was inevitable was kind of a reality as long as she kept that worldview. Um, if her worldview had changed without um, simply a shattering that it was a lie, if she had started changing over the course of things, she might have been more flexible and able to handle it. But in all likelihood, if she continued with her present worldview, uh, becoming a witch was inevitable. Right. That makes sense. Um, let's do let's do two more. I'll do you in the green and then you in the pink. So Hitomi is really interesting because she's our purest representation of human beings, like pure, because she's not tainted by the views of having a magical option to escape a problem. Mm -hmm. So she's the best version we have of a human outside of mommy, or not mommy, excuse me, Madoka's mom, mm -hmm. where she's like, when you're human, there's things that you're very um, prone to. Like, there's the whole thing when they're looking at each other and not saying anything, she goes, girls aren't supposed to act like that. And she's obviously like, you know, showing her own innocence of the world. She knows that, that that's not what's going on, but right. she likes to play it up. <laughs> But whenever it gets down to the situation with the boy, she's very upfront with Sayaka. She's like, say something or I'm gonna say something. Mm -hmm. And so she is that, that version of the world that's like, and even nicer than the actual world of, I'm giving you an opportunity and Sayaka doesn't take it. So it, she is that harsh reality of the world that the world goes on without you. And Sayaka has to realize that, which I think is the biggest human struggle ever, is realizing that the world doesn't stop no matter what's going on in your life. Um, I want to add something quickly about um, one of the struggles I have with uh, depictions, anime depictions of romance, is this uh, this really drawn out like coyness thing where <laughs> the the girl just like cannot like confess and like they will just like like I mean I, I'm pretty sure I mean correct me if I'm wrong but Atomi like asked Sayaka up front like do you like him and she did that whole like oh I don't know and stuff happens and things and you know blush you know so she didn't she doesn't even answer the question and um and that's a very Japanese thing about about uh it's not necessarily it's a notion that first of all you don't really say things directly that you more show things through your actions, so there's less emphasis on words to say, you know, to spit out, you know, I love you or I want to go out with you or something like that. Um, there's more of an emphasis on action, but um, it's also a very, it's a very strong gender expectation about, you know, being forward it, for men and women. So it's a gender expectation um, in dating, um, and it's a little bit. It, there's more emphasis on it for women, but there's there's this. You don't you you don't come out and um, kind of state your intentions very clearly because that can come off as sleazy. So, um, uh, and Ziz Ansari did a book called Modern Romance and he actually went to Japan and interviewed some Japanese men and then they talk about that notion. Like, you don't, you don't just walk up to a girl and say, I like you, like that's ridiculous. Like you're, you're trying to be a player or something. So it's a, um, it's a very different notion and sometimes from a Western perspective that can be frustrating about you have these long drawn out, like if somebody would just say, I kind of like you one time, like, does anybody watch Detective Conan? I was like, oh, oh my God. <laughs> After episode 585, I was like, oh my God, this show is pissing me off. So, uh, so 
yeah, so that whole thing, I just thought that was funny. I was like, and maybe that that is, con maybe that is a part of what my frustrations with um, Sayaka were, because I was sick of seeing that trope. But they do that trope on purpose, because it has a, it has a place in a relationship with Magical Girl anime as well. Um, so that, um, that was probably done intentionally. They didn't need to have this romance subplot. They certainly didn't need to have Hatomi do anything, but having that little bit of reference to what you see in magical girl animes and this, uh, the, the relationship aspect of it, um, cause Madoka doesn't have a love interest. So they, they did it with one of the characters. They did that on purpose to kind of reference back to what a lot of magical anime does. Um, and then I, I did say you next. Yeah, uh, actually it was. They actually brought it up. I was, what I was going to say about Sayaka is that she, she's, she's a child. So she wants what she wants and she doesn't really have a lot of idea of consequence or the way that things should be. And I think that's part of what's so frustrating to watch her is that like, especially as an adult watching this show, <laughs> to look at that and like, remember when you've like, you were like, but I should have that, you know, that's the way that things should be. And right. then also watching if Homura has lived this for 10 years she's no longer a child now she's grown right. up and so she's trying to have this discussion as an adult with a child and i think trying to watch that dynamic is really tough because right. homer can't say that's what's going on like i know better than you mm -hmm. i mean she tries but she's like not good at communicating with people and uh, so so watching that i think that's part of what makes it so tough is it's almost like you want homer to like be more of a parent to her and say like i just know that you shouldn't do this mm -hmm. and sayaka is such uh like a preteen teenager like i know what i want and this is what i deserve and you can't tell me what to do right um and uh and that to me is like a lot more real than say madoka as a young child like i was never like madoka as a child i wanted what i wanted you know i didn't right. really care about what other people wanted and i think um that's why we want to talk about sayaka so much is that she's so much more real in a lot of ways even though she's <laughs> so frustrating sure that makes a lot of sense okay and then i'll do you as less me yeah okay <laughs> one thing i wanted to uh, add to like what you were saying about like the coyness mm -hmm. uh when i was in high school uh in my anime club because you know i was a nerd since day of the, since the dawn of the first day mm -hmm. but, um one thing is that we had a whole day where we just looked at weird japanese commercials mm -hmm. and um what my teacher who was the teacher advisor he'd actually like traveled in japan and he actually learned more about their culture and one thing he was actually told that he told us in turn was that um one common thing that he was told is that if it's too upfront, it can't be trusted. So you have to make the most, it's sort of like, that's why the commercials are so weird. Mm. That, that's how he was trying to explain is like, the weirder it is, the more they sort of idea is like, oh, that could be trusted. So like, you never actually like, go to like, in our commercials for like, it's a very weird way to like, confront it, but like in our commercials, like, uh, suave will make your hair super soft. Yeah. Look at this hair. Uh, but in Japan, they'll be like, that can't be trusted. There's too, there's too a prom dog. That's clearly a lie. Mm -hmm. But, like, so they'll be like, look at this dog. He's so cute. Buy this shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you have to be very, um... Yeah. You have to, like, not like, reference something too directly. You, you, you can't be direct about what you're trying to sell, about the actual product. You can't be like, man, this is fucking delicious. Try it. Yeah. Uh, you have to be like, look at this, not eat this. You have to, like, sort of go at it directly. Otherwise, they can't trust it. It's a weird thing, but I guess because they're so... Um, uh, I guess like they're they're very uh, a very modern like, mm -hmm. country. They're like very smart. Like their education is ridiculous. So they're just like you can't trust if it's out right unless it's a textbook. That's very interesting. Um, I love uh, 
one quick aside is that I love analyzing commercials. Um, it's one of my favorite things to analyze in a culture because you actually get a very quick picture of what, um, it's a distilled form of a culture because you have to communicate something very quickly that people can <coughs> understand within that culture that connects to either a values or a common understanding of something. So commercials are great for kind of uh, analyzing uh, what uh, what are some of the cultural values are um, in any sort of culture that you're analyzing? Um, so um, I, I reference that a lot of times, and I, I use actually commercials, um, not commercials. Um, I use uh, magazine advertisements and stuff like that to kind of initiate people in some of my um, race and gender discussions because it's a great way to say, you know, what is the value that's being communicated here? Why does this even make sense? Because um, a lot of times commercial realism, as it's called, uh, it, it's they're weird or they're. Uh, they, they make references that um, unless you really understood what is behind it don't necessarily make sense. So, uh, you know, it's a great tool for analysis. Um, okay, let's talk about Madoka because I know some people want to talk about Madoka, of course. <laughs> so her name is, um, it has the uh, characters for Wish, Ambition, and Flower in it. And um, the name Madoka can, can also be written, it's not written like that way, but the name Madoka can also be written um, with the character for circle or round, um, which is definitely um, interesting because um, uh, Madoka's character, uh, the, the notion of um, something being cyclical is actually a common theme in, uh, in the series. So um, first there's the uh, cycle of uh, the magical girl becoming a witch, then having to be fought uh, by another magical girl, so that's its own cycle. Another cycle is um, the cycle of Homura going back in time over and over again, and then that creates uh, Madoka as a focal point. Uh, yet another cycle is it gets, um, this is a fan term for what the pre-Madoka goddess universe was, which is um, called uh, the law of wheels, uh, meaning that the, the energy flow in the universe um, when uh, magical girls became magical girls and then, and then became witches and had to be fought by a magical girl, and then they ultimately succumbed to despair, which caused them to become witches, that law or universal cycle was called the law of wheels. And then in Madoka's, um, in Madoka's universe, uh, she changes the laws, and it's um, there is a there's a name for that as well, but it's escaping me. Um, but she creates a new law that then, um, instead of being uh, succumb to despair, uh, magical girls simply run out of magical energy, and then they kind of disappear. And it's implied that they go into kind of Madoka heaven, um, where she um, um, as she became in her goddess form, and then she kind of created that new reality. So she broke the the law of wheels. Um, and created a new reality with her with her wish. So um, there's a lot of references to cyclical and circular things uh, in the anime, which is interesting. Um, now, the way in which they characterize Madoka is kind of referential to a bunch of stuff. So she's supposed to be um, innocent, obviously. She's supposed to be kind of a pure-hearted character, but she um, she's also supposed to be there's a lot of Madoka's personality that is kind of uh, not written or is left up um, to other characters to kind of flesh out. So Madoka doesn't get actually a lot of strong characterization throughout most of the series. So she, I guess in contrast to something like um, Usagi in Sailor Moon, where um, I hope no one's gonna like get upset with me, but I don't care for Sailor Moon Crystal. <laughs> um, um, because um, the characterization I feel like is too much on Usagi, but even in the original series and in Sailor Moon Crystal, um, 
the her personality is written pretty clearly. Like she's supposed to be very bubbly, very friendly, very open, deeply romantic, deeply invested in um, kind of a bunch of schoolgirl notions about about romance and her future. Um, has um, vivid dreams, like things that she wants to be. So she she has a very kind of distinct characterization, and um, her personality is what connects her and what pulls in other. Um, characters to her, and that's why she develops strong friendships with the rest of the um, Sailor Senshi. Um, Madoka is supposed to have some of that, but we more hear about it rather than see it. So we know that Homura has a strong, um, has a very strong connection with Madoka, but that is only fleshed out in one episode, because the whole series is obviously only 12, 12 episodes, which they have a limited amount of time to flesh stuff out. So we don't quite you know, she's quiet in class. We don't quite see her as like a social butterfly. We don't see her reaching out um, to people, except in um, kind of Madoka and uh, Homer's flashbacks. Um, we do see Madoka um, taking some effort to like talk to Homer and stuff like that, since Homer seems shy. But her characterization is less crystal clear than other typical magical girl protagonists. So. Um, I think that that's done. I can only uh, I can only speculate about why they did that um, in the anime, but I think that that was done um, one to put the audience more in Madoka's shoes. So you're kind of going through this journey as Madoka. You're like, would I become a magical girl? Would I really want to give that up? Like, I'm kind of with her on that. I'm seeing my friends make all these decisions. I don't know how I feel about that. Like, you as an audience are kind of going through this journey with Madoka and. Um, it's a common author strategy to, if you want the audience to put themselves in the shoes of the character, you characterize, you 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 make the the character, um, the characterization of that main character less strong. You you make it kind of more like people can easily put themselves into that character's mindset. Um, it's why uh, Bella in the Twilight series is a complete non-character because every female is supposed to be immediately able to put herself in the in the shoes of Bella. Um, so. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons that they did it, and I think we're also kind of supposed to discover more about Madoka through Homura's eyes, because essentially, uh, and a very good argument can be made that this series actually isn't even about Madoka, this series is actually about Homura. It's about Homura's journey, Homura's decision, Homura's the instigator of all of these events because Homura is now controlling the timeline. So the series is actually about, um, and if you uh, watch the opening, the, the lyrics to the song are actually uh, from Homura's perspective because um, she's talking about her friendship and stuff with uh, Madoka. And so when you read the lyrics, you're like, oh, that, that, that only makes sense if you're looking at it from Homura's perspective, really. Um, so uh, there's a good argument to be made that you're looking at this uh, series um, from Homer's perspective, and you're actually, Homer is actually more of your main character than Madoka. Madoka, Madoka is simply a catalyst for Homer's action. So that might also be why you have kind of a limited characterization of um, Madoka. Another thing that could be said is that Madoka is the point of view character. Mm -hmm. You know, although she's not, Homer is the main character, but Madoka is the one through which we see how Homer is dealing with her issues as the Yes, absolutely. So yeah, the audience can, again, you're going through that journey with Madoka, especially the first time you watch the series. You're not, you don't know anything about what, what Homer's control of the timeline is or what her situation is, so you understand her perspective much less than Madoka's perspective. But the second time around, then you, then you understand Homer's perspective a little bit better. Um, I'm going to talk more about Goddess Madoka a little bit later. Um, if we, um, but did anyone want to add some stuff about Madoka or actually any other characters that we talked about so far? Um, yes. And here I am keeping 
attention on me. Um, another thing that could be thought of of Madoka, though, in some respects, especially towards the end, is um, similar to uh, the Buddha's journey of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. As she sees all of these things that go around, all of these sufferings that occur, mm -hmm. and um, uh, similar to the supposed legend of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, um, suffering through temptations and eventually ignoring them and seeking enlightenment, you then have Madoka, who's being constantly tempted by Kyubei to become a magical girl, to do these things, even after she realizes what's happening, because Kyubei keeps setting it up to try and force the situation, and eventually, rather than just follow Kyubei's script, although she does become a magical girl, she acts in a manner to um, basically eliminate the suffering. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then there was a uh, there was a person who did a panel on was that you or is that someone? No, that okay. was someone else. Okay, just... he he was at my panel last year and I can't remember what his name was, but um, yeah, there was someone who actually did a panel a couple years ago on the Buddhist um, connections with Mado the Madoka series. So there's there's actually a lot of parallels with Madoka and Buddhism as well, in addition to um, the Faust uh, play and some other stuff. So um, there's very strong uh, symbolic connections between those two. Um, let me actually look real quick if I wanna do. Okay, so I wanna watch, um, we're gonna talk about Homer next, but I wanna watch the clip and I'll bring it up um, of uh, when Homer first wishes to be a magical girl. special attention to the exact wording of her wish, because I want to talk about that a little bit later. So the exact wording, they, um, they messed up one part of the subtitle there, but essentially is, um, I 
uh, I want to redo my meeting with Madoka. Instead of her being the one that protects me, I want to be the one that protects her. So, because we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, let's start slideshow. There we go. Okay, so um, Homura, as we talked about, she is, um, again, a lot of the series is from her perspective, um, especially upon the second viewing. Her name um, has the characters in it for Flame and Blaze. Um, you can also, uh, it has uh, associations with Heart of Fire, uh, Massive Flame, and Village Protector, um, which is interesting because in Rebellion, when she turns into a witch, you actually see um, a lot of flames forming around her, and I, they did that um, visually also to draw attention to her name and her witch character. And then vi Village Protector is interesting because in a sense, she is trying to protect the village of her friends from this kind of fate of becoming a magical girl in the trap. Um, she's un she can't save mommy because mommy had become a magical girl already um, by the time she's able to go back to, but um, she does make a lot, and she can't save Kyoko for the same reason, but she does make efforts for a lot of the time to save um, Sayaka before getting frustrated, and then obviously her whole aim is to save Madoka. Um, I just thought this quote from um, Oriko Magica, which is a spin-off of Madoka, was interesting about um, Homura's motivations. She basically says to Madoka, like, don't ever tell me not to save you, um, because that is, has been her sole motivation for so long, it kind of seems like she's unable to kind of separate um, her existence or her purpose from saving and protecting Madoka. So um, even if it's something that Madoka doesn't necessarily want herself, um, Homura is intent on um, is intent on achieving what she thinks is the best outcome for Madoka. Um, in the beginning, when she first made her wish, like she she didn't have a full understanding of what becoming um, a magical girl was. Um, but she so she knew that she wanted to stop Madoka from dying. But then, as she as she obviously got to know more about um, becoming uh, what becoming a magical girl actually meant, and that they eventually became witches. She then only learned that her true aim was to stop Madoka from um, becoming a witch, as well as Madoka's request for her to stop her from becoming a witch. But um, she, you know, she had she known what she needs to know in the beginning, she actually might have made a different witch. She actually might have um, uh, pushed the series in a different direction um, if she had a holistic picture of what she was trying to accomplish. But unfortunately, she um, she she phrased the, her wish in a specific way, which we'll talk about, and then. Um, and then her aim became to stop Madoka from becoming a magical girl, and then in Rebellion, her aim becomes a little bit more complicated, which we'll also talk about. Um, most of the stuff I want to talk about with Homura is, um, has to do with uh, ultimately what I think happened in Rebellion, um, but um, if we have other things we want to talk about, we can definitely go into that as well. Um, so quickly, I want to talk um, a little bit about um, witches, uh, just for folks who want a little bit more background on on the witches and why they are, and what exactly is going on with each of the witches in the series. So um, background for the witches is that uh, the witches' barrier, which is all the different scenes you see there, um, is unique. So each witch's barrier is unique, and that's because their motivations for becoming a magical girl are unique. Um, the barrier is a manifestation of kind of what, what are the origins of their despair or kind of what, um, what finally tipped them over the edge 
uh, to becoming a um, to becoming a witch. So it's supposed to reflect. You're supposed to know something or be able to figure something out about the witches based on what their burial looks like. It's not kind of just arbitrary art, artistic, um, uh, artistic. Um, what's the word we for? Like um, leap Yes. <laughs> or um, this is not quite the word I'm for, but yeah, it's not. It's not just. Uh, it wasn't haphazard. Um, so, uh, for instance, Charlotte, who is the witch on the left, so the story behind her that's been pieced together through author comments and stuff like that is that um, she, uh, she, her mother was dying of cancer in a hospital, and the hospital that you uh, remember that her witch appears at an actual hospital site. Um, so her mother was dying of cancer in a hospital. Uh, Kyube shows up, and she asks, her wish is that she get to share one last slice of cheesecake with her mom. Um, and, and then she becomes a magical girl based on that witch. Uh, uh, she becomes a magical girl based on that witch. Then immediately she figures out, and she was supposed to be a younger than our main magical girl character. She was supposed to be um, more towards eight, nine, whereas our, our main series characters are supposed to be around 12, 13, 14. Um, she, she immediately realizes how stupid that wish was because she didn't wish for her mom to get better. So the idea was that she almost immediately became consumed with despair because she immediately realized how stupid her wish was and she becomes a witch right at the hospital. So uh, her, the, her witch's barrier reflects her, um, why she even thought of cheesecake because she had a love of dairy products, there's cheese, there's desserts, there's cheesecake around um, in her witch's barrier and then, um, and then it shows kind of her interest and then it's tangentially related to why she became a witch. So that's supposed to be what's happening with all of the um, witches barriers. You're supposed to know a little bit about the magical girl behind, uh, about behind the witch. Um, uh, also, I would not like to note that uh, Sayaka's witch, um, best name, Octavia von Seckendorf <laughs> is the name of her witch, uh, which I think is great. Um, her witch has the form of a mermaid. So that's supposed to in, uh, be indicative of the Little Mermaid story. Um, which, um, as you know, the Little Mermaid makes a sacrifice to um, try to end up with her, or with her love or romantic interest. So they're making a reference to um, the Little Mermaid story in her witch's form. And then you also see the music around her. You see kind of you see the images of of her past um, come up. So um, uh, it's it's more clear wh uh, where her uh, where the images in her barrier are coming from. But then they also make another reference to it with the Little Mermaid as well. Yes. Actually said, said that, like, said why would I yeah. waste my wish on that? Right. Um, but yeah, so that's. Uh, uh, I think they. I think they probably had that seed take place in that in the time where you're seeing a bunch of food and stuff around as as kind of another connection between the thought processes of magical girls. So, yes. Um, the. Um, so in terms of witches, uh, like I said, the lost cycles. Um, was kind of the previous structure of magical girls becoming witches, um, uh, and then in turn needing more magical girls to then stop the witches. So uh, 
the brilliance of goddess Madoka's wish or Madoka's wish was that um, she um, essentially she becomes a new universal constant. So that's why you have to see the whole universe getting rewritten when she asks for her wish because um, she is stopping a current universal process from happening and she's creating a new process and having to, she has to intervene in the past, present, and future. And she says, I wanna stop all just from being born in the past, present, or future. She has to intervene in all dimensions, all time frames. So she has to be constantly present in the universe as kind of this entity now um, to actually achieve that wish. The only reason that wish was able to be achieved is because of Homer's actions that then centered all of this cosmic energy as Cube references around her where she was able to make such a powerful wish because uh, it kind of, you know, you think about if another magical girl had figured that out if they had been able to make such a similar uh, similar wish and the answer is probably no. Like it had to be the, the, the circumstances that led to that wish were created and were only possible because of Homer's actions and this ultimate amount of cosmic potential or energy or, or however you want to refer to it that was built up around Madoka, giving her the ability to then make this wish that essentially rewrites the structure of the universe. Um, so um, that's important to understand, to then understand what is happening in rebellion. To understand that Madoka is actually, is um, she has a physical form that she can take, she still has a personality and all that stuff, but she's in a sense become a law of the universe. She's become a universal concept that has to operate as any sort of universal law does. Um, so um, does anyone need, like, does anyone need to leave the room for who hasn't seen Rebellion yet or anything like that? <laughs> Um, oh, okay. <laughs> I was hanging with three months ago. But, so there are gonna be spoilers, so if, you're, if you would not like spoilers, then, um, then we're gonna talk about rebellion for the rest of the, rest of the panel. Um, so I'll give that a minute. Um, if you pause the, um, if you pause the, what was I gonna say, if you pause the, huh, everyone, go see Rebellion! <laughs> it's on Netflix! I don't know. You can come back in in like 10 minutes. I don't know. But I, I, I want to be able to answer questions about it too. So, um, um, Another cool thing is if you pause the series um, in uh, different places where you see all the different types of magical girls, um, you actually see some historical figures, which I thought was pretty cool. So you see Joan of Arc. Um, you see um, uh, Cleopatra. Uh, you see someone who... Um, you see like a girl in a train and the common fan interpretation is that she might be um, uh, in a Holocaust train or, or something like that um, based on the um, just how it's drawn. Um, and then you see other, um, you see uh, magical girls throughout history. So I thought that was a little cool aside that they threw in there as well. Um, that also includes magical girls that seem to be coming from a future time period. Oh, notice, yeah. If you notice, there are one or two magical girls that show up and as they're um, about to perish and Monica shows up to them, the background shows something very that seems very futuristic. Yes, I do remember seeing that. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that that's good, does a, a good job of illustrating the different timelines that you are able to see. Um, I mean, that Madoka intervenes in. Okay, so Rebellion. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was clever. Um, so essentially, um, so here's why, let me give you my theory about what's happening in Rebellion. So the reason why I want you to keep in mind Homer's wish is because I think that's also part of what's, of what's coming into play with what happens in Rebellion. So in Rebellion, you have 
you have Homura, you know, has her corrupted soul gem. Madoka, you know, at the end of the movie, then Madoka is coming in to cleanse it and take Homura in into the this, uh, you know, disappearing, becoming a part of the Madoka heaven um, cycle. Uh, Homura grabs uh, Madoka and um, and then doesn't doesn't allow her to complete her action either way. Uh, my belief is that Madoka separates from herself partially because because she is that universal constant, she has to be able to continue to travel out through the different dimensions and time periods to, that's a part of her witch, it's a fundamental part of her witch. So she has to be able to travel to those different time periods to then stop witches from being born. But if she's being restricted, then the part of her that is the universal constant leaves and the part of her that has a physical body remains as Homer grabs her. Then, um, some of this is based on author word of God and some of it is based on fan interpretation. But essentially, um, so Homer grabs her and Madoka separates. Then we see Homer's soul gem get corrupted, but it gets corrupted in a way that is different. Number one, because it's no longer possible for the soul gems to get corrupted in the same way that they have been because witches no longer exist. Number two is because of what Homer was saying that um, my soul gem was never corrupted by despair. It was corrupted by this constant need to save Madoka or my love for Madoka. So that's Homer's theory about why the corruption was different. Her soul gem breaks and the corruption and energy from her soul gem encompasses the entire universe. So that's partially word of God that it's encompassing the entire known universe. And now Homura's, so the entire universe is now within Homura's um, a version of a witch's barrier, Homer, a version of Homer's witch's barrier. So not only is Madoka now still a universal constant, Homer now actually has some universal influence and maybe stronger universal influence than, uh, than Madoka. So her soul gem encompasses the whole universe and she turns into uh, a demon version of what Madoka became. So Madoka became a goddess, became some partially universal constant, Homer becomes a demon, and uh, partially universal constant as well. Uh, and then that's her form in the picture. So, uh, so at the end of the movie, we see Homura is essentially able to rewrite people's memories. She's able to construct um, a new reality as she would like to see it. Um, she's, we don't know where the Cubes are or what influence that they have. Presumably they're still a part of this universe, but we didn't really get to see them in the end of the movie to see what exactly that they are doing. So Homer has a certain amount of control that, um, that hopefully the next series or the next movies are going to flesh out um, in addition to Mado uh, Madoka's control. And then um, Madoka at the end is struggling to, uh, there's still the part of her that's, or her physical body that's trying to rejoin with her universal um, constant self. And so you see her almost, it almost float off and Homer kind of pulls her back and says, no, like, like I'm gonna keep you safe and I'm gonna keep you as just your regular self in my new kind of created universe. So that is my interpretation of what happened in um, Rebellion combination of official sources and kind of fan interpretation and reading more about it. Um, the reason why I think Homer's wish plays a part in that is because she did not say, um, you know, I want to, I want to, uh, she specifically said, I want, instead of Madoka protecting me, I want to protect Madoka. 
Her wish did not come true at the end of the regular series. Madoka still ended up protecting everyone at the end. Like Homer did not achieve her wish at all. Like she got her power, but she didn't, where was the part where she ended up protecting Madoka? It never happened. So is this the true manifestation of her wish that she's finally having this power to achieve what her original wish was? And maybe that's also contributes to why her corruption was different than everyone else's corruption, um, is because it's it's the true um, achievement of her wish. So that's, I just think it's interesting, like that, that wording that was chosen, her wish never actually came true in some interpretations, so maybe she got an additional power boost from that. Um, yes? If you're going by that theory, then one could also consider that since she was the one who caused Madoka to have that universal um, power and become the nexus point. Mm -hmm. The fact that Homer kept shifting and negating timelines mm -hmm. may have caused that un unnatural corruption in the form of her love for Madoka that encompassed each timeline she negated. And she's been doing this for 10 years. Yeah, so uh, I mean, so so cosmic energy is surrounding Madoka, but it's cosmic energy kind of in potential also surrounding Homer at the same time that kind of allows her to then de develop this massive influence. Um, which I think is some of what you were touching on. So definitely um, think that that's a part of it. Um, and one of my, another one of my clips is um, from Rebellion with um, Homura. Um, oh, no, this is a separate scene that I wanted to talk about. So we're going to play that. That might have to be our last clip, um, but I'll play it. It's about three minutes. Um, I wanted to... I'll point out what uh, what I wanted to point out in this afterwards.
Rebellion was kind of a betrayal of the series or didn't reflect kind of the motivations of the characters correctly And I thought it was a brilliant ending because it's explaining Absolutely what we everything we know about Homura What her perspective on the situation was going to be so the author said that um, The what Madoka said is the real Madoka and, and is what she was actually feeling at the time so he did so he wanted to clarify that it wasn't a um, like Homura's manifestation of Madoka or her making it up since since they were in her um, her witch's berry at the time. So he's like, that was the real Madoka, and that was the real Madoka talking about what her actual feelings were. So home, from Homer's perspective is, I didn't achieve anything I wanted to achieve. You still ended up having to sacrifice yourself for everyone. You still ended up doing something you didn't really want to do. I still didn't end up, ended up end, I still didn't end up protecting you. So, um, so she's like, yeah, I failed in my mission. So that explains what her motivation was in stopping Madoka. Cause she's like, I, this isn't, Allowing this whole thing to continue with Madoka being everyone's saver isn't what I wanted and isn't what is good for Madoka. Uh, Homura is less interested in what Madoka herself wants. Homura doesn't seem to care much about Madoka's like, I made the decision to do this. Uh, I'm, I want to save you too. Or this is, you know, Homura doesn't seem to care much about uh, Madoka's proactive decision making or anything like that. Um, her sole concern is Madoka's welfare in contrast with Madoka, um, Madoka caring about everyone else. So it's kind of like this notion of uh, selfish love, um, which I have in this next slide, versus uh, selfless love. So Madoka selflessly loves everyone and then kind of wants to, um, uh, wants to achieve the best possible outcome for everyone else. Homura, in the meantime, uh, want, wants to care only about Madoka since Madoka isn't worried about herself. She's like, someone needs to care about Madoka, that's me, and she only cares about an outcome for Madoka. So they're kind of actually two contrasting forces now. You have a heavenly character and a, and a demon character with two contrasting influences, both positive, both uh, stemming from caring about someone, but Madoka is going in one direction and Homer saying, no, I'm interested in your welfare and not anyone else's. So it's a very, very interesting dynamic. I thought it stayed really true to um, Homer's thoughts, to Madoka's thoughts, and actually creates, sets up a very, a very interesting, um, a premise for the series. So um, uh, those are some of the other considerations that we've touched on a little bit, so I don't think I need to go over those. I did want to give a little bit more time for audience questions. We have about five minutes left. Um, but um, yeah, I did want to give a defense of the rebellion ending because I think that was an excellent characterization of uh, the two characters. Um, so let's do five minutes for questions, and then we'll wrap up. Yes? I don't believe so. Um, someone may have read something else, but um, I don't think, I don't recall if they, I don't recall reading anything about that, and I don't recall that dialogue there, but yes. If you liked this, check out some of our other shows like Mr. Right, 
exotic liability, and no applause, just the clap. You can find us at www.bacnpodcast.com and by searching for BACN on iTunes and Stitcher. Oh, yeah.